Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Well, it is now my pleasure to uh, introduce Kim Schoenholtz. He is a NYU professor and director of the Center for Global Economy and Business. And he joins us here in our 11.30 studios. Uh, thank you, Professor. Great to have you here. Happy uh, holidays. My uh, pleasure. Are they really happy holidays for business based on what you know out of the uh, tax overhaul bill and uh, what you see as f- in terms of uh, changes in any financial regulations for businesses? Well, let's see, leave the financial okay. regulations aside for the moment. But And even the tax uh, changes aside, uh, business is doing pretty well. Profits are high uh, as a share of GDP. So this is a pretty strong period of the economy. Growth is above the level that we can sustain over the long run. So, uh, and unemployment's down to the lowest level we've seen in more than a decade. We may hit the lowest we've seen since the 1960s uh, during ni- 2018. So this is a strong period for the economy. What, to what do you attest this, uh, this strength in the economy? Is it government policy? Is it natural business cycle, credit cycle? Look, this is the ninth year of expansion. And so uh, this has been a disappointing expansion for most of its uh, history. Uh, but we're finally getting to a point where we're, approach- we're very close to full utilization of labor resources. Uh, and that's exactly when you would expect businesses to be looking for other ways to expand. Investment picks up. Uh, and uh, in addition, profitability has been high for some time. So if anything, investment has lagged profits. I, I guess, okay, but I guess I'm wondering what, what in your mind, based on your analysis, what accounts for this strength in corporate profits? What accounts for the low level of unemployment? Is it a policy? Is it political? Is it natural? What is it that you believe accounts for all this? The single most important thing has been uh, a very stimulative monetary policy over the last uh, seven or eight years that has taken a long time to have its impact. But uh, central bank policy in the U.S. has been very accommodative. We've stimulated financial conditions. So stock prices are high, bond prices are high, meaning bond yields are low. Uh, All of that eventually has had an impact on stimulating aggregate demand in the economy. All right. So I got to jump in here, um, Kim, because we were talking a bunch on TV, but I'm just curious, why does it not feel terrific? And why, and I guess most importantly, as we've talked about the gap between the folks that are wealthy getting wealthier and those who are not, does anything get better in terms of reducing that gap? Well, let's take the two parts separately. First, why has it been so disappointing? Yeah. Um, I think there are a variety of reasons. One is that long-run growth appears to have slowed, and we were observing that during the recovery. Mm -hmm. So productivity growth has slowed a lot. That's really hurt us over time, and that's really a problem for for our long-run living standards. Uh, Second reason is that the in the after effects of the financial crisis were just enormous in uh, reducing the ability of our financial sector uh, to provide support for the economy and 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 also uh, of the ability of of non-financial firms to manage their expansion so and households were severely damaged I and mean, think of how much damage there was to household wealth for an extended period of time mm-hmm. so this is this has been a disappointing recovery. It's amazing that we're in the ninth year and do see so few imbalances. It's partly because it's taken so long to get here, but we're now here. And that's why, given that we're at this stage, this is when you'd expect investment to pick up. So what worries you then? 
Well, let me just respond to like your other question about oh, income equality. Forgive me, yes. Um, frankly, I don't see that getting better without government action. And if anything, government action has worked the other way. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, we've been in this long transition period in which um, there are benefits to uh, people with higher incomes and higher skills. And, uh, and that's still there. there. There's a huge premium for getting a college education today. Um, so people with more skills get higher earnings and that differential is not going away quickly. So I don't think that uh, gets corrected without mm. government changes. Uh, far be it for me to introduce the actual answer, but I'm just going to pose something. And Carol, you know, you bring this up, this idea that people do not feel as if the economy right. has entered this strong uh, position. And uh, Professor, I would just wonder, has it, is it possible that a lot of this has to do with security? And I mean physical security, because physical security has created... Uh, let's say, time constraints on everything from going to the airport to going on a train. To, in other words, the, in the apparatus, the security apparatus in the country is vastly different than it was in, let's say, previous recoveries. And as a result, you're being required as an individual to have more patience, to set aside more time for things that you don't necessarily like to do, such as standing in a line. Also, you see around you the effects of lack of spending on infrastructure. So that can make you feel terrible when you hit a pothole or when you're, you know, being forced into one lane and driving, you know, circles to try to get to the airport departure gates. Is that part of what makes us feel this way? Uh, Pim, I can't say with certainty that that's making a, uh, such a that's big why, difference. That's why I offer it, because uh, you but can't. I, but I, but I, here's, I would give you a simpler hypothesis. Okay. Because we started from such a very high unemployment rate in this expansion, we've had very low wage growth. And so uh, people's incomes just haven't that's expanded it, right? until recently. And if you're asking me as an economist, what would I focus on first? That's what I'd focus Why on. Why is that not happening? Considering we talk about the improvements in corporate profits, revenues are growing. Um, you look at some of the CEO pay packages and they're doing just fine. Why has it not trickled down? Is it just that companies have not had to pay to get workers? Uh, look, until relatively recently, there's been an abundance of labor supply relative to demand. And I think we are, we're in that period precisely when that's changed. We're in the sweet spot where the economy is operating with nearly full employment, and that changes the way firms behave. It means that they're willing to pay more for workers. It means they're willing to invest more. This is when we benefit from the expansion. Usually, in most Phillips expansions, that would have happened a lot work? earlier. The Phillips curve? Sorry? The Phillips curve actually works? It's not clear that I would want to rely on that for policy, but I think it's probably the case that when the labor market gets tighter, mm. that causes firms to bid for labor. It just takes time. Uh, and remember, you know, we we're in a different labor market structure than we used to be. Uh, far less unionization, so there's uh, less threat of strike. Um, but from time to time, we will see strikes, precisely because labor is less abundant than it was. When you mentioned uh, corporate profits, I just want to uh, follow up on what Carol said about that translating into higher wages. Uh, if the corporate profits are in, do indeed exist, they must exist somewhere. They either exist in the form of dividends, share buybacks, or just cash on a, a company's balance sheet. Uh, if that's the case, is it really just because workers will spend the money that the economy will benefit? Because the money's there. It just isn't being spent. Is that what you're... Well, you know, the fact that firms get profits uh, doesn't mean it automatically gets spent. It does, mean, it does raise the question, are they doing the investment? Is someone who has greater wealth willing to spend more? Uh, people may want to accumulate wealth without spending more, especially when they live in a period of uncertainty. 
But what we're seeing now is the personal savings ratio is going down. Right. And that's telling you people are spending more. That has begun to change. We went through a period early in this recovery where the savings ratio went up. Mm -hmm. I was telling you they were really nervous about the environment in which they operated. So uh, I think we're finally getting to the point where in most recoveries, we would have been uh, at this stage five or six years ago. See, Carol, it really just all, all boils down to making more money. If you make more money, you're going to feel a lot better. Works this for me, God, right? Kim exactly. Fox. <laughs> We're waiting, right? We are waiting. We'll have to start to see if we, we do see more wage pressures. Certainly the, the stats, the statistics, the monthly labor reports haven't necessarily uh, bore that out, but uh, we'll be keep, keeping a track of it. Joining us uh, with our continuing conversation is Kim Schoenholtz, a NYU professor and director of the Center for Global Economy and Business. And I guess I would be remiss in this uh, 21st century if I did not mention that uh, Bitcoin uh, has increased about 9.5% in value. It's trading at about $15,083. Ethereum also a little bit higher. Litecoin, other cryptocurrency, gaining 3%. And Professor Schoenholtz, you were saying just uh, during the break that you know that things are getting into a bubble if you get a lot of questions about Bitcoin. Did you receive a lot of questions about Bitcoin over the last week or so? Yeah, I think that one of the hallmarks one of the hallmarks of a bubble is that it becomes the topic of conversation. And uh, I think partly because of the enormous press attention that it's getting, and that's reflecting the price action in the markets. Uh, we're seeing a lot of people who have very limited knowledge about this asking questions. It's fine to be asking questions. The danger is that the price movements themselves induce people to buy. And when you start to see that, that's, that's what you worry about a bubble. Was it you who talked earlier on TV about on Bloomberg Surveillance about FOMO, fear of missing out, or maybe it was another individual? Might have been someone else, but it's a pretty common fear that people think that they have to get involved in something is that when it's on the way up, and um, that's worrisome. We've seen that with many other assets. This is not unusual. Uh, fortunately, it's not so big that it will affect the the, the economy at large if the bubble bursts, but. Um, but it is worrisome for the investors themselves. I was at an investment conference. Michael Lewis gave a big keynote, you know, best-selling author, um, Liar's Poker, Flash Boys, The Big Short. And uh, and knows a lot about the financial industry. And someone asked him, you know, why haven't you written about Bitcoin? And he, he talked about being uh, in a gathering with other folks who were in the know about Bitcoin. And he said, well, can I buy anything with Bitcoin? And they're like, yeah, you can buy a cup of coffee. We'll take you to the corner. They went to the corner that he had some Bitcoin. He couldn't do it. They couldn't actually make the process happen. He finally threw out some, some dollars and did it. But his point was, tell me when I can actually do something with it. Then, then I think there's a story. There's something much more productive here. That's a great way to respond. Uh, by the way, I like Michael Lewis's book, so I'm mm -hmm. not surprised. Um, the, the question is, what are the fundamental values of a Bitcoin? It can't be a dividend that will get paid because Bitcoin doesn't have any earnings. So it has to be from the use, the widespread use of, of that as a means of exchange. In fact, over the last year, the use has collapsed. 97% uh, of trading in Bitcoin is gone over the last year because the Chinese authorities shut down the exchanges. 97%. Yep. So... Most of the trading in 2016 in Bitcoin was in on the Chinese exchanges. That's gone. Having having said all that, the very concept, though, of a, uh, shall we call it maybe an ultra currency or an ultra means of exchange that is not uh, part of the financial system as we know it, you think that there's any possibility that that 
the digital world will come up with an answer for that? Look, there are central banks that are exploring now whether they want to create their own digital currencies. And you can see why there's an incentive because governments look at currency issue as a good way of financing themselves. It's low cost compared to issuing interest paying debt. Um, but, uh, even in that area, there are worries about having digital currencies that are run by governments because uh, the question is, will people eventually prefer that to having, say, a deposit at a bank? And if they do, where will the banks be able to raise their liabilities with which to provide the credit in the economy? If at some point in the future we end up depending on the central banks as digital currency issuers to be providing credit, we will have replaced the private intermediation mechanism. That's a worry that I have about any digital currency form in the if it's state-run. But isn't that happening already to a certain extent that that middle person, that middleman, whether it's in the banking industry or the financial services industry or really any industry, is getting crushed because the margins are just getting so thin? Well, yeah, we have to look at the statistics. I think I, when you were asking the question, I was thinking you're right to an extent because the balance sheets of most of the central banks have gotten a lot bigger. And during the crisis, some of them were purposely uh, acting to replace intermediate private intermediation that was no longer uh, providing the services that we needed. But in a normal expansion, I think it's really uh, worrisome to have the central bank replace the private sector as the supplier of credit. Eventually, that raises the question of whether credit will get politicized. All right. Whether, sorry. No, no, no. Forgive me. No, I didn't mean to interrupt, but... I, I... All right, so we're all going to have to try and figure out what ultimately Bitcoin is all about, right? And the financial system is trying to figure that out, Kim. In the meantime, you wrote something over the summer, which I, I want to just quickly get to. We've got about 45 seconds. You wrote about the U.S. Treasury's missed opportunity. There are things within our financial system as it exists that we should be paying attention to. If you could just quickly say Look, what that is. Look, you know, the, the, we're, we're in a better place than we were a decade ago. Uh, the, finan the banking system is far better capitalized than it was a decade ago. But that's because it was pitifully capitalized a decade ago, and we're in a better position now. But there's a lot we could do both to make our financial system more efficient and safer at the same time, which tells you we're not running an efficient set of regulations. Unfortunately, I thought the Treasury's proposals uh, fall short in a variety of ways. If anything, they're not supporting greater uh, capital requirements for banks, which I think would make our system right. safer. And they have fallen short of being willing to impose efficiency rules that would help us uh, advance. We have to be watching what's coming out of Washington because certainly there could be some changes. Kim Schoenheltz uh, of NYU joining us here on Bloomberg Surveillance. Carol Master, Pim Fox, this is Bloomberg. Now I want to bring in our next guest. Sharon O'Halloran is the George Blumenthal Professor of Political Economy and Professor of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University, the author of the book entitled Politics, Process, and American Trade Policy, and she joins us here in our 1130 studios. Professor O'Halloran, thank you very much for being with us. Maybe just begin by giving us your thoughts about the tax overhaul plan and the effects that you believe it will have on the economy or indeed even on consumers. So first of all, we know that it reduces the corporate tax and it brings it in line with many of our trading peers. And we saw other countries doing the same, such as France and even Germany, who reduced their 
corporate tax even below ours. And we see, in addition, that many of the individual tax were cut substantially, and that was, they were significant. And we also see that this was rather a retrogressive tax, in the sense that those folks at the higher end of the income distribution were going to get disproportionately more than those at the lower ends. So, for example, if you make $10,000, you're going to get about $10 of bang. And if you're making over a million, you're going to get about $70,000 of bang. And if you think that, in fact, the this is a stimulus to the economy, the impact of people at, e- at those brackets, if they spend, usually the lower incomes spend dollar for dollar, then that's going to have a less impact than someone at the higher end who tend to either save or put that in a less, say, dollar for dollar uh, impact. So, it'll, that's it. So, okay. So, that makes, okay, get it. That obviously, if you're making a lot more money um, in terms of the possible benefits to taxes and tax cuts, you're going to see bigger a bigger bang. Having said that, those folks at the lower end of the income scale, as you said, tend to spend more rather than save it or invest it. Mm-hmm. Will that have much of an economic impact? Will that make a difference in their lives too? So there will be very little difference at the lower end of the impact. I mean, they're at the lower end of the scale, clearly they'll most everybody will see some cut. Uh, again, it's not going to have a substantial impact at that at that area. The places where there will be significant impact is what you will see is one, they have reduced each of the scales down and they've closed some of the loopholes, which is good. They've uh, increased the individual um credit and that's important so they've attempted to simplify those the the different types of schedules i think it's been not as effective as they had hoped but that i think is going to be the the effect in addition these rates are not permanent in fact they fade off by 20 25. And so, in fact, we're going to kick back to the old rates. You know, it, one, one thing I wanted to ask you, though, about uh, the process uh, having to do this, I understand the idea of trying to align the corporate tax rate and make it more harmonious with the rest mm-hmm. of the world so that we are not at a, a, a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. All right. So having said that, is there uh, on the, the personal side, is there a uh, an economic benefit to the reduction uh, of state and local tax deductions? Is there, sure, obviously there's an economic benefit to state to the, and local, but, but, there, but we didn't reduce state and local tax correct. deductions. We reduced the federal income tax. That is true. We are actually making it that you cannot reduce deduce or take out right you can't deduct your your state so my point would be the states where that exists where Mm -hmm. you're not going to be able to reduce cut you know deduct your state and local taxes won't those states just have to increase taxes in order to make up for that budget uh shortfall because i mean it's still as if the things have to be paid for well that's not clear that they're going to be able to because the high tax states already are going to be at a significant disadvantage to the low tax states such as Florida. 
And it's going to be very difficult for New Jersey, New York, Connecticut to raise the state and local taxes. So all of a sudden, there's going to be enormous amount of competition. And therefore, the way in which they're not going to be able to raise what's called the mill rates, right? Right. So the way in which they're going to have to do that is going to be almost through surcharges of that or sales tax. Okay. The point I'm trying to make, though, is that if the United States is lowering corporate tax rates to be more consistent yep. with the rest of the world, yep. we're doing just the opposite when it comes to state and local taxes, we're making it as if they're all different foreign countries competing with each other and it's a race to the bottom. Right. So one, corporate taxes, the effect of corporate tax, if you look at what GE spent, was paid was 13% because they, they have the best accountants in the world. Okay. That's really their comparative advantage. So that let's set it straight. So we're just harmonizing that and cutting, cutting out the loopholes. Second, it's already it's, we've always had competition between the states over tax and tax structure, and there's been advantages to being in these high tax areas, either because of locality. You're in New York, you're in the north northeast. There's good school districts, so forth and so on. The way you move to that when you no longer can use your state local taxes is that you use sales tax. You use different types of excise taxes. You use toll rolls. Those are the ways in which you get the money to pay for the schools, the highways, the other types of infrastructure that the local communities need. So, Sharon, and just going back to economic impact, though, your research says that it's unclear what the long-term effects will That's be ultimately from this tax overhaul package, what it will be on the economy. We just kind of don't know. Well, that's correct. I mean, in the end, in 10 years out, about 67% of Americans will be paying more, right? Because the individual tax rates are going to be going, will be, will be phased out. And consequently, it's not clear whether, in fact, this is going to be an overall stimulus to the economy and lead to greater growth. Moreover, you don't know if at the higher ends that there's going to be greater investment, greater consumption, if there's going to have the trickle-down effects that they're all thinking that it will, especially when you're in an, a scenario where you have very low em employment unemployment, you have uh -huh. uh, basically low inflation. So you're not in the area of the era of the Reagan economics where that did have a, a stimulating effect. So it's not clear that this is the environment where a tax cut is going to have a lot of traction. Would you have uh, crafted a tax overhaul uh, with great differences than... than what we saw? So I, I would do the corporate tax. I do think that is that is something that has to have had and be become efficient. I would have put incentives in place to uh, repatriate the, a lot of the funds. I would have done. I think that's a, something that makes a lot of sense. Uh, there are diff there are inefficiencies within our tax structure. I, I think I would have tried to simplify first and foremost before I would have focused on the individual cuts, because I think just simplifying and closing loopholes would have done a lot for us right? Uh, without getting into the nitty gritty. I definitely wouldn't have gone after the, the, the education. Sharon O'Halloran is with us. She is the George Blumenthal Professor of Political Economy and Professor of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University in New York. 
New York, author also of the book Politics, Process, and American Trade Policy. I sounded like a New Yorker for a moment. Hey, Sharon, uh, you guys recently held a conference up at Columbia. Uh, you had folks like Jack Lew, former Treasury Secretary, uh, Nobel Laureate Joseph Stieglitz, uh, Barney Frank, uh, many others. And you were taking a look at 10 years after the financial crisis. Um, and what did you guys find? So we found that, in fact, there's a lot of really retrospective looking at where we are now by everyone across the political spectrum. And there's a sense that uh, while the, we've, the different regulations that we put in place have actually addressed the issues that they meant to address, such as recapitalizing the banks and making them strong and safe for the next financial crisis that we sort of the ones that we experienced, there are new sets of risks that are emerging. Uh, the well-known ones such as we've seen is pushing a lot of the riskier activities out into the shadow banking areas or the non-regulating sectors. And the, those areas are not just hedge funds anymore. They're, they're, they're sort of banks or bank-like entities that are even happening online. And so they're completely unfamiliar than what we saw 10 years ago. And completely under the radar and can be missed. Absolutely. So those uh, other areas that are taking place that are becoming problematic are um, mutual funds. That is another area that people are concerned because that's a huge part of the market. And that's not, there's so much lack of transparency in that market. So that's another area. The other areas that we've uh, seen it, that's creating bubbles of risk, if you will, are the push to move all of the different derivatives and swaps and all of those different types of financial instruments that many said that caused the financial crisis onto clearing houses. Well, you think that's good because that standardizes the products, process, the, those products, puts them on a um, common contracts and so forth. However, what that does is it centralizes the risk. And so what's happening is that you have a single point of failure. Mm. And so that actually may be increasing systemic risk. So while we're seeing increases in the safety and soundness of institutional banks, banks and capital and capital absorbing, shock absorbing capital, we're seeing growing systemic risk at various points taking place. So that's, those are some of the areas that we, that we're, coming up within the discussion. You know, what, just to follow up on your comment about derivatives and yep. uh, the centralized risk having to do with uh, clearing houses, have, have we done anything to change the compensation structure so that these kinds of deals that would potentially produce problems are not profitable? I mean, I would imagine that the reason people do deals or create certain products is they know they can make money at it. And if you can't make money at it, you're not going to do it. So is it an issue of the sales compensation programs that need changing? So when we think about Dodd-Frank and we go back and look at Dodd-Frank and we ask whatever happened to the executive compensation provisions, and we see that it was really the top executives that top paid executives that were actually going to be monitored and going to have to disclose, and you're going to have to pay attention to their bonuses and so forth. But 
as was noted, it's usually not the general counsel that's making risky bets. It's or the traders, and they are not regulated and they, in the sense that they don't, they're not disclosing their different types of salaries. So in many ways, their incentive structures haven't fundamentally changed. Now, many would argue that, oh, no, there's disclosure. No, oh, no, there is, in fact, clawbacks. There are other types of mechanisms in place. We are, they are much more, they are much more uh, regulated. They have to have different types of compliance procedures. So they would, people in the banking industry would cite all of those different types of checks. And those are all true. But if you ask the individual what types of incentives are in place, they have many of the same. So if you have many of the same incentives to do much of the same behavior... Right. The question is, is the compliance and is the <laughs> What's oversight? the point of all, you know, of everybody getting a series 14? I mean, that's great. But I mean, if the incentive is to sell whatever it is you have to sell, what, you know, why would you expect a different result eventually? So the way that regulations of the Dodd-Frank worked was to put in more capital, right, to limit the types of risky activities that could they could take, right, like in the Volcker rule, move out the proprietary trading. Right. But what's happened is most of that risky activity, again, has moved outside of the regulated areas. So you can ask, okay, so the banks and the investment banks, the significantly important financial institutions, they may not be taking those tail end extreme bets, but doesn't mean that they're not happening within the system. So. In the current environment, in the current White House, uh, President Trump has laid out seven core principles for regulating the U.S. financial system, right? It was an executive order. So based on that, we're not going to get more oversight, right? We're going to get less oversight. Right. And in, in the discussions, it was clear that a lot of the substantive issues that were in Dodd-Frank were more or less correct. They were trying to do the right things mm-hmm. to, to make the banks safe and sound and the system safe and sound. It was how they were doing it now that the question is, in the implementation of those principles, have they got that right? Or the question was, were these regulations in particular, like in particular Volcker, were those fit for the purpose at hand or other other regulations that would be more appropriate. And so that was some of the discussion. And here, that is what the Trump regulations or the Trump executive orders are really thinking of. One, is there a way to make these regulations more efficient, uh, less complex, because they are very complex. When you have regulations like the Volcker rule that are, what, 400 pages long, at that point... Good luck, everybody. Exactly. (laughs) The only people who really know them are the bankers, the lawyers of the bankers, actually, and they're the only ones who can tell you how to manipulate them. So at that point, it's very difficult to not only oversee them, but to understand whether you're in compliance or not. So that's, that's, those are some of the issues at hand. In addition, uh, there are other principles about eliminating that. Uh, They want to get rid of the consumer 
right. financial protection, which right. is what we saw, right, and right. which was put in place um, a baby of Elizabeth Warren, if you will, to yes. really kind of watch out for consumers. Um, Sharon, we're going to have to continue this conversation another time. There's certainly a lot of moving parts whenever we talk about uh, the financial regulatory environment. Sharon O'Halloran, thank you so much. Professor Sharon O'Halloran, George Blumenthal Professor of Political Economy and Professor of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University in New York City. Well, as we've reported earlier, Saudi Arabia expects oil revenue to jump by 80% by 2023. That would put oil at about $75 a barrel. Here to help us understand this is Stephen Shork. He is the editor of The Shork Report. He joins us now on the phone. Stephen, thanks very much for being with us. So $75 a barrel by 2023. Uh, What kind of percentage do you give that? Uh, a very low percentage, Pim. Uh, we have to keep in mind that the only reason why uh, we have a long-term economic forecasting is to make astrology look respectable. So that said, I do think the market is challenged from a number of standpoints. Uh, most importantly, of course, is the uh, rapid growth of shale production uh, predominantly here in the North America, but certainly that technology will expand to other markets around the globe. So, but we recently had an announcement by Saudi Aramco that uh, they were making, in some corners, who thought it was a very peculiar move to expand beyond uh, their borders and uh, purchase assets, uh, a lot of assets uh, based on shale here in North America. So we're starting to see the Aramco uh, game plan come into focus right now, and that game plan is uh, based on two phases. First and foremost, uh, as I said, the acquisition of assets beyond its borders, but also we have uh, the announcement that uh, they were going to wean, that is, Saudi Arabia government was going to wean their power generation off of crude oil. They burn a significant amount of crude oil in the summer in their power plants to keep those ACs running in that hot Saudi uh, summer. So they are going to make the transition over into natural gas, uh, which, again, helps explain their acquisition and their, their growing import needs for LNG. So that is going to open up tens of millions of more barrels of crude oil that will be able to hit the export market. Because when you think about it, every barrel of crude oil that's burned to keep an AC on in Saudi Arabia is not a barrel you're earning export income on. So Aramco does seem to be making the steps to uh, boost their bottom line. But as I said, given uh, two things, uh, first and foremost, the growth of access to supply. But we also have to keep in mind, guys, that the entire economics of crude oil have changed uh, over the last 10 years. You have to keep two things in line with regard to factors that that impact consumer behavior. We've always had the first variable. That is the price shock. Going back, we've had our our troughs and our peaks going back to the Arab oil embargo in the early 1970s. But we have never until recently had that second component, and that's the substitute. So the substitute being, of course, the growth of hybrid technology, EVs, and so forth. Uh, The genie's out of the barrel right, right there. So I don't expect demand to have that commensurate impact 
that has had in previous uh, rallies in crude oil, given that consumer behavior uh, has indeed changed. So that's $75 oil. It's a long way off on that prediction. uh, And I do think it is going to uh, have its roadblocks uh, in the years ahead. Well, especially when you've got China coming out and they're saying they're going to, you know, plan to ban sales of fossil fuel cars entirely. That huge market has got to make anybody and everybody in the energy market, you know, sit up and take notice. Oh, absolutely, Carol. And it's it's not just in China, of course. Mm-hmm. There are headlines over in California. Uh, we recently had uh, a couple months ago the announcement by Volvo that they are completely going over to to EVs and so forth. So yes, uh, whether it is commercially successful, whether uh, it's being ordered by government fiat, uh, certainly. And and this is why you are seeing the major, you, you, the, the BPs, the shells, and so forth, they, they are rebranding themselves uh, as a as gas, natural gas companies. They're, they're getting away from that oil. Uh, I was recently at a conference uh, over this summer where a major car manufacturer Manufacturing is is um, beginning to brand itself as a transportation company. So then, when we start to factor in the growth or the potential growth of driverless technology, mm-hmm. uh, it, it gets to the point where, look, I, I I have a car for myself. My wife has a car. We have a, we have a clunker car for, for our older kids. Uh, that's three cars in a generation. You know, conceivably, we not we might not have to own any car if I can call up a Lyft or an Uber and have a driverless car come and pick me up or take the kids to the school. Right. Why do I need to own a car? So these are certainly factors that are going to play in hand. And again, it's going to keep a, uh, a lid, I believe, on crude oil prices in the foreseeable future. The shared economy. Maybe I'm asking the obvious, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. With Saudi uh, Aramco getting ready to do its IPO or hopefully do its IPO this year, uh, there's been some questions about the valuation, $2 trillion, $1 trillion. What, what might it be? Are headlines like this? This is, again, a story about where they expect oil revenue you know, increasing by 2023. It's a few years off here, according to people in the know. I mean, is this just about boosting the value of that IPO? Uh, I'm going to put my skeptical hat on and say, yes, I do believe that is a lot of jawboning to attempt to keep the price uh, higher because obviously you're an oil producer, uh, you're going for a valuation, yeah. you're going for an IPO, you want that, your, your, your product that you sell as high as possible. And hence why I do think that uh, this was the announcement that they're going to take uh, all that, uh, you know, that transition of moving oil from their power generation to the export market certainly will boost the bottom line. And, and Wall Street has taken notice. If, if we look at the bets that traders, oil traders, are taking on with higher oil prices, uh, they've gone, you know, once again, they went all in last November after the first OPEC announcement to cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, they got burned terribly in the first quarter, uh, but they're, they're at it again. Uh, Wall Street's sitting on record length in right. the Brent crude oil market. Uh, they're sitting on uh, a four-year high length sitting uh, in the NYMEX WTI contract. So they're the ones a lot hey, ha- have been buying this market. We are speaking with Stephen Shork. He is the editor of the Shork Report, all about energy markets. Uh, Stephen, you mentioned natural gas earlier and how many oil companies are rebranding themselves as natural gas companies, such as BP and and Shell. What's the best way to profit from this uh, rebranding effort, from the desire to use more natural gas rather than oil? 
Well, absolutely, Pim. And first and foremost, it would be in the petrochemical industries that uh, these are industries that are highly dependent on natural gas, and we do have an access uh, to uh, to a, a, a you know, you know, <laughs> you know, pun intended, a boatload of of natural gas. So I always like the in, I, I always go for the Levi Strauss method, uh, Pim. Uh, look at the guys who are supplying the material, uh, the infrastructure. That is to say. We're now in a tremendous uh, period where the industry is, is turning on a dime. Uh, Fifteen years ago, you had natural gas that supplied nearly 20% of uh, the lower 48 or the contiguous United States gas needs. Uh, and hence, when you got a Hurricane Harvey or Hurricane Irma, uh, for example, natural gas prices would double, triple, quadruple. Uh, this time around, they haven't. And that's because now nearly a third comes from the Appalachian Basin. So we're in the process now of declining that market. So infrastructure plays, pipeline plays, plays that uh, will will benefit from the growth of LNG and export markets. So it's the plays that are can take the gas from where it is in the producing area and get it to where it needs to be. Pipelines up to uh, eastern Ontario, pipelines down to the southeast to get to the export market, pipelines to get it to the east coast to the export market. Mexico has made a you know has made a tremendous investment, and, and Mexican demand for for natural gas coming out of the southwest is is is, is robust right now, and it's only going to grow over the years ahead. So so look at where the growth in demand is going to be, and plan accordingly. And this comes even as natural gas prices uh, remain below $3 per million BTU, correct? I mean, right now we're at 267. Do you see the actual price of natural gas moving higher or as you said just sell the picks and the shovels? Yeah, no. I, well, I, again, I think the picks and the shovels are, are, are a, a very safe bet. And if you are investing in companies that do uh, have a tremendous uh, need for natural gas, uh, part of the feedstock being in petrochemical, being in power, uh, being in steel, heavy manufacturing, and so forth, um, if, you, if you're investing in one of these companies, you, you want to make sure that they are doing everything in, in their power to lock in natural gas prices at the levels. Because uh, as I said, as these infrastructure plays grow, the demand will grow. And natural gas prices are, are, are historically at, at, at very, very low levels, uh, record levels if you take inflation into account. So if you have a company that has a tremendous consumption of natural gas, before you invest in that company, make sure, go back to their annual reports, go back to their investor meetings, make sure they are locking in natural gas uh, prices at these levels. Because in the short-term, PIM, uh, we're in an extreme bear market, and, and I'm not going to rule out natural gas prices through this winter falling lower. But in the years ahead, you can these companies can go out and find a swap deal that will sell them uh, the oil, excuse me, gas, natural gas at these levels five, six, seven years out. If these companies are not locking in natural gas prices at these levels, I, I think they are doing their investors a tremendous disservice. All right. So in other words, know your investment. Speaking of knowing your investment, we kidded before uh, bringing you in um, about talking about Bitcoin. And I thought I was going to go there. And lo and behold, I'm reading on the Bloomberg terminal, uh, checking out the top energy menu. And it says how China has used, made the first ever purchase of Middle East oil using 
blockchain technology. So not necessarily using Bitcoin, but talking about blockchain technology. Do you, mm-hmm. Stephen, you have been following the energy world for a long time. Do you see either digital currency or blockchain, the backbone, uh, the digital ledger that supports digital currencies ultimately being used uh, in the commodity universe and specifically in the energy universe? Uh, the answer is yes, but I, I want to put the caveat out there that I, I don't possess nearly the amount of gray matter to understand uh, these cryptocurrencies uh, and, and the bid that's going into them and, and what I perceive to be a, a just historic bubble. But that said, Carol, over the past 10 years, there has been um, an effort uh, by Iran, by Russia, uh, to wean the world off of the petrodollar. And, and, and Americans really have to uh, consider you know, how, what a benefit benefit, uh, the U.S. dollar being uh, the world's invoicing currency has, has been because, yeah, those dollars go out to purchase this oil, but they always come back to the United States uh, to invest back into uh, the United States. So I do think um, whether it is the viable option, uh, but com- you know, countries, uh, you know, for example, Venezuela, which we do have uh, sanctions on, uh, and it is putting a strain on the Maduro government, it, it has talked about moving towards a cryptocurrency and, and, and weaning themselves off the dependence of having to own dollars uh, or, or uh, for that hard currency. So, yes, I do think that is a potential, threat, although, again, once again, the, the caveat here is that is a market that I, I, it, it reminds me of Enron, Carol, 15, mm. 16 years ago. Mm-hmm. Everybody thought they were the smartest guys in the book, but uh, everyone was afraid to admit that they didn't understand what the heck these guys were doing. And, of course, they were a bunch of crooks. So uh, I'm not calling Bitcoin crooks or anything, but there's a lot of people, I think, investing in it, and, they, and, and they're afraid to admit they really don't understand uh, what's going on. I don't understand what's going on. I'm staying away from it, but that's not to say, as, as you rightfully pointed out, uh, the move by China. We've seen the move by Venezuela. Uh, there's been moves over the years from Iran and, and, and uh, excuse me, Russia to wean themselves off of the, the dollar. And I do think uh, cryptocurrencies will help uh, speed that along. Stephen Shork, anytime someone puts a picture of Bill Murray in their research report, we always <laughs> yeah. got to flag it and ask you, what is Omnium Gatherum? What does that mean for uh, investors and, and a picture of Bill Murray in the Shork report? Right. Our ROG, Omni Gatherum, is our take, our commentary, our observations, and in in the daily issues of the Shark Report on things that have an immediate impact on the energy industry. And, and to your point, if anyone was a Bill Murray fan, specifically the movie Meatballs, <laughs> uh, when he's trying to rally the troops playing against that, that superior camp across the lake, he's saying, look, they're better than us, but we can beat them because the fact that they're better than us, it just doesn't matter. And so when I look at the, and this was apropos the natural gas market that we have industrial demand uh, is back, and that's been the, the one uh, uh, driver in natural gas prices over the last eight years uh, that that has kept the lid on natural gas prices. Um, and so, it, look, and we have to keep in mind at the end of 2014, yeah. it wasn't just the oil market that crashed; the industrial metals complex has right. crashed. Right. The industrial metal, and, and that's your that is your your telltale of an economy that was sputtering. Stephen, we got to run. Thank you so much, though, for uh, talking with us uh, on this Tuesday. Stephen Shork of the Shork Report. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, 
or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.